Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. We're in uh, Confessions, uh, the series based on the book of Solomon, uh, the fourth week about... uh, uh, about some of the issues that Solomon was addressing in his life and how can we can see that in our own uh, confessions of our life, especially uh, Pastor Gill. Uh, the last two weeks, we've been preaching on some things God had laid on his heart, some convictions he's placed in him. Uh, but today we're going to talk about something uh, that all of us had to deal with. Every single one of us live in it. Uh, we live in the constraints of it. And uh, it's one of those things we all have to, right, we have to come to terms with. And that's time. And, and, and not just time as some abstract concept, but timing, right? The timing of specific situations or specific uh, experiences in our life. Uh, let me ask you guys a question. How many of you guys know someone who has bad timing? My wife is raising her hand right now. How many of you guys know someone who has bad timing? Right, okay. We all, we all know them. Timing is so important, right? We all look at that, we can immediately say, right, we don't even need someone to tell us that that's bad timing. You should not answer your phone at a funeral. Just a tip if you haven't realized that, okay? Don't, don't do that. Um, bad timing. Uh, but timing is so important to all of us. You know, our culture has so many different phrases that have to do with time, right? It's about time, right? What that means is, man, I've been waiting for you to do this forever, and finally you are, right? It's about time. Or how about you do this all the, what, time, right? Really all the time? I mean, like every single, no, that's not what we really mean, but it's like this happens so frequently. It occurs so often that I feel like it's just all the time. Every time I look at it, that's what's happening, right? We have, we have these phrases that have to, to, have to do with time. Or, or there's the right time for something and the wrong time for something, Right? Right time and wrong time. And our, our culture is kind of obsessed with time a little bit. You know, we are, we're a very timely culture. Um, we actually have to apologize after being probably five or ten minutes late to a meeting, right? Some cultures, like in the islands, uh, some, some of the islands, you don't have to apologize until you're hours late. But us, it's a cultural expectation in America and in the West that we, you know, that we are on time, like exact time. For us, timing is very, very important. The phrase time is money is one of those phrases that kind of shows us the importance of time in our culture. And what that basically means is, look, uh, my time is is of equal or greater value than money. And all the time that I spend is, is time that can be spent elsewhere doing other things. So time is valuable. It's very, uh, it's worth money. Right? It's got value to it. There's a money value to it. And you know, the interesting thing about time, and, and all of us don't have to think about it for too long to come to this conclusion, is that we can't get time back. You know, all these other assets we have in our, in our lives, our house, you know, our car, uh, money, uh, even health. I mean, I know that those things can depreciate, and, 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 but we can pot, there's a possibility of getting those back. It is absolutely and utterly impossible to get time back. Once a moment passes, it's gone. Never to be returned again. Right? You may have another opportunity to do something, uh, but you'll never get that actual opportunity, that actual time back. It's gone. 
It's one of those things that we cannot recoup. And so timing is extremely important. And thinking about how we spend our time and how we value our time, what we do with our time, is something that the Bible is very, very uh, concerned with and clear about, actually. Now, now, I talked about bad timing, and I have really bad timing. Um, I'm just, this is an area of weakness for me, uh, and I'll prove it to you. And don't worry, I've already talked to my wife about this. Um, she knows, I think. Uh, anyway, um, I, I've been going through these, like, um, you know, trying to look deep inside, you know, trying to figure out what's happening, seeing patterns deep inside, like from my, you know, from my family of origin, figuring out some of these issues that I struggle with and where the patterns are and trying to submit them to Jesus. And it's really good. It's been a very good exercise. I, you know, I encourage anyone to do that. But I'm going through all this stuff, and I'm getting all these revelations about myself. And there's this idea just, you know, it's like that big old bulb just pops right in my head, you know, above my head. This is a great idea. I'm going to try to get my wife to realize some of the issues that are going on in her heart, you know? And, and man, intentions were so good. You know, it just sounded so good in my mind. And, and I'm like, babe, you know, we're driving. It's like two minutes till we're about to get somewhere. I'm like, babe, you know, I think you have trust issues. Right? No. <laughs> She's like, what? I'm like, where's this coming from? And, and I don't have an answer for her. I'm like, uh, or babe, you know, I think you're, uh, I sure I shouldn't even say this one. But I'm going to. Um, I think you struggle with pride. Whew. That was dumb. That was really stupid. And, uh, and, and, you know, Ash is a very self-aware person. Right? She examines her heart. I shouldn't really need me telling her all this stuff. Uh, but I felt, you know, oh, man, I, I'm realizing this stuff about myself. And the timing was just really bad. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't very good at timing. But all of us have been in those moments in our life, right, where maybe we're at the right place at the right time, right? And what we mean by that is that, man, we're in this place, and we feel like, oh, all the stars have aligned, and we're at the right place at the right time, baby. But once we're at the wrong place at the wrong time, our attitudes and our emotions change about it. Like, think about people who maybe were at Walmart when there was a shooting, right? Many of us say wrong place, wrong time. And maybe many of you thought that day, oh my, that day, oh my word, I was planning on going. Or, or maybe you knew someone who it affected. And we say wrong place, wrong time. It's like our way of saying, oh man, it's just, I'm glad I wasn't there. It's just the wrong place, wrong time. It's like, oh, just fate. Or even right now, what's happening internationally to Christians, some of our own if you know Jesus, some of our own brothers and sisters in Christ and Iraq and in those places where horrible things are being done to them, atrocities. And we might say, oh, wrong place, wrong time, but is it, is it really wrong place, wrong time? Is there something more going on? See, timing is so important. As a matter of fact, timing is everything. And God talks a lot about timing. And today I want to go to a part of Ecclesiastes that is probably the most well-known and maybe the most misunderstood part of Ecclesiastes. And it's Ecclesiastes 3, okay? And you guys will know it because that time, da 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 Okay, so you guys have heard that song, anyone? Uh, the birds, right? Am I getting that right? Yeah, okay, good. Um, but let's go. Ecclesiastes 3. 
1 through 8. For everything there is an appointed time and an appropriate time for every activity on earth. Now, make sure you get that. Everything there is an appointed time. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to uproot what was planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to throw away stones, and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search, and a time to give something up as lost, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to rip, and a time to sow, a time to keep silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace." When we look at this verse and we look at this passage of Scripture, oftentimes many of us interpret it this way. Well, God just wants me to make sure that I uh, am wise about my timing. Right? There's a time to sell stocks and there's a time not to. There's a time to buy a house and there's a time not to. Or there's a time to approach my wife right? and there's a time not to. Right? And that's true. That, that is all true. That, that's wisdom, right? We need to ask God for wisdom and timing. And that is, um, that is an application you can get from that, but it is not the application. See, Solomon is not describing what you should do. He's describing reality. And he's saying, look, we live in this world and we need to realize that everything that happens happens for a reason, and has an appointed time. Who appointed it? God did. And when we look at it, what we can observe, and what Solomon was observing, looking back on his life, is look, I've seen a time where people are killing each other, and I've seen a time when we're healing each other. I've seen a time when there's peace, and I've seen a time when there's war, and it seems like everything just cancels each other out. And the reason you can see that is you look at the next verse, and you can just see Solomon's attitude here. It says, what do really people really get for all their hard work. What do we get for all our hard work? And the implicit answer that Solomon has there is we don't gain anything from this hard work. We don't gain anything. He goes on to say in Ecclesiastes 3.10 and 11, And I have seen the burden God has placed on us all. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity into the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. Okay? And he looks at that. And then he goes on in Ecclesiastes 3, 12 through 13. All right? So I concluded there's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of the labor, for these are the gifts of God. And some of you are like, exactly, man. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's how I want to live my life. That's it. Just live for the moment. Hey, and I get that, but that's really not, that's really not the conclusion that we're supposed to come to here. Now, now, before we move on, I need to address an issue that's probably already boiling in, in some of your minds. It's this issue that God has complete control of all things. 
God holds time in his hand and completely controls the events of this world. That he sustains them, that he permits things, that he allows for things that we couldn't imagine ourselves allowing for, suffering that we couldn't even understand. And before we move on, I need to address the question that's in our heart because I understand how hard this can be. It's a very difficult issue. But, but here's the reality, and here's how the Bible describes to us the reality of what we live in. God created men, uh, man and woman, mankind, in perfect relationship with him, but he created them with a choice. He he created them with an ability to choose. In other words, he created them with free will. All right? Now, Now, the Bible is very clear that God is in control, and it's equally clear that we have freedom to choose, that we have free will. And God in what, you know, what a very theological term, but it's fairly easy to understand, sovereignty, that means God's complete control. Within God's sovereignty, he has given us free will. That means we can choose to obey or disobey. We can choose to do good or do bad. We can choose to do evil. And the reason he gave that is that he could not know. We could not love him. It would not be genuine. It would not be real if we had a choice not to, if we we didn't have a choice not to. If we couldn't choose not to love God, then our love for God would mean nothing. And you all know this. If your wife had no choice but to love you, you wouldn't really consider that love. Or if your kids had no choice but to love you, you wouldn't consider that real, genuine love. And we have struggled with this for centuries and centuries, this question of free will. But the reality is, if there is not an opposite choice, then there is no choice at all. And whatever it is means nothing. It becomes meaningless. God is in control and he has given us free will and he has not yet eradicated the sin and suffering that has entered into this world. But we need to understand that not only is God in control, but God is also good. And that means that all the things that have happened, the radical things that have happened, the things we've seen in suffering do not change the fundamental character of God, that he is good, that he is just, that he is love. And it's not only that God is in control and that we have free will and that God is good, but God cares. God really cares. He cares about what we go through and he cares about what happens to us. And the reason we know he cares is because he sent Jesus. And Jesus came and suffered like we do. And Jesus came and experienced the full spectrum of human life and human reality. And he suffered more than anyone in this world has suffered before. We know God cares because he sent Jesus Christ. And the second reason we know he cares is because he raised Jesus from the dead. And because he raised Jesus from the dead, all his promises are true and they're guaranteed. And that means one day God is going to right every single wrong. He's going to eradicate sin and suffering and pain in our life. This thing I got on my neck, all right, that's hurting me right now as a result of the fall. One day my muscles aren't going to ache anymore. One day, my heart isn't going to break anymore. We know God cares because he sent Jesus and he raised him from the dead. 
And the last thing I want to address before we move on to get this idea, you know, of God's control. I know it's hard, but the last thing is that God, for those who love Christ, God is far more concerned with making you like Jesus than he is with making you happy. God is so much more concerned with perfecting you and and, and teaching you and making you like Jesus Christ who learned obedience through suffering. God is so much more concerned with making you like Jesus, with giving you what you need than what's gonna make you happy and what you want. And until we get that from here to here, man, we're gonna struggle with a lot of these things that happen to us in our life. They're already bad enough. But man, when we think just God doesn't care or he's not concerned or he's not good, it just adds complications that we don't need to have. He does love us and he is good and he does care. Romans 8, 28 and 29, it says this. It says, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to be like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God wants to make you like Jesus. And it's to his credit that he can take the sin of mankind, the sin of free creatures who can choose, and that he can work it all together to bring Jesus here, and that he can work it all together for our good in the end. Man, that's not a strike against God. That's a strike for him. That, that's a point on his scoreboard. He did it right. So we have this, so, so we have this idea here that, that Solomon has given us that God is in control. But we look at what Solomon's saying, right, in Ecclesiastes 13. He's going through all this, and he's seeing these opposites that basically cancel each other out. And his attitude is one that we can be kind of confused at looking at it, right? It's really one of those places where you're like, how come this is in the Bible? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I look at the Bible and there's so many places that it encourages me. And then I'm looking at this. I'm like, ah, man, we should be handing out antidepressants at the end of service, dude. That should be our application because this is depressing. Sorry, that probably shouldn't have said that. Um, This is depressing, right? What do you mean my work's not worth anything? But whenever we come to a verse or passage of scripture, we have to ask this one, it's just extremely fundamental question. And if you don't ask this, then, then you're not going to be able to get the point of it ever. And this is really easy. When you're doing your devotions, you're reading the Bible, ask this simple question. Why did God put this in there? What was it about the human condition? What was it about the human heart that God felt necessary to put this in there to teach us something? In other words, what about our fallen nature? What about our brokenness needs to be completed by the truth that we're seeing here? And in this case, I believe that the brokenness that's here, that that the imperfection, that the issue that God put this in there is that oftentimes we go through life and we live as if God doesn't matter and as if his word doesn't mean a thing and his opinion it couldn't make a difference in our life. We, we don't live in regard to him. We don't make our decisions in regard to him. We don't bring to him in prayer what we're doing. We're not concerned with his life. And then we begin to get, we get so used to it that we think we are actually in control of everything, that we can control that person, that we can control this situation, that we can make it all happen. 
And God is reminding us in stark language that is not true. He is God. He is in control. And his will will be done. And sometimes we can find ourselves in opposing positions to God because we are trying to control what is his alone to control. See, all of us, when we get to stressful situations, and I want you just to take a moment, you know, think about that thing that's kind of making your heartbeat go a little faster, right? Raising your blood pressure, that situation in life that's just feeling a little bit beyond your grasp, okay? There's basically two kinds of uh, uh, categories of responses. The first category is, I'm going to take the bull by the horns. I'm going to force this thing into submission. I'm going to make it do what I want. I'm going to make my wife do what I want. If she keeps nagging me, if she keeps disrespecting me, then I'm just going to get angry and loud and louder than her, and I'm going to intimidate her into submission. Or if my husband won't listen and he won't do what I want, then you know what? I'm going to make his life a living hell because I'm going to control this situation. If my kids won't respect me, they don't care about what I say. But you know what? I'm going to give them, right? I'm just going to control this situation, and I'm going to say, I'm going to make them respect me. We take control, right? And then there's another category, and this is honestly, if I'm honest with you, this is where I fall into a lot, is you know what? I'm wiping my hands clean of this situation. I'm not taking responsibility. I don't really care. Do what you want. Not my problem. And just back away. This is when you give the cold shoulder, right? This is when you give the silent treatment, right? This is when you totally forget. You know what? Forget you. You know what? My boss is going to do this. You know I, I, I don't even care about them. I'm not going to pray for them. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just going to pretend it's not happening. I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to hide from it, okay? And when stressful situations come, ah, I'm going to take control. I'm going to take control. And then all of a sudden we get exhausted and all of a sudden people start resenting us. And then we realize we can't really control them. It's too hard. And then on this other side, when we're giving up, say, you know what? People start to lose respect for us. They don't care about us anymore. They're like, who is this guy? And the question that Solomon asked at the end of that passage is the same question that God is asking us today. What do we gain from all our toil? What do we gain from all that control? And you know what? On both those categories, it's coming from the same place. Self-preservation. See, the reality is when we're facing this, we're trying to grasp control or we're trying to let go. It's from the same origin. We're just trying to save ourselves. We're trying to be our own functional savior and we cannot do that. There's only one savior and it's not us. And when we try to do that, we end up broken as a result. I I understand how hard it can be. I've done it myself. In past relationships and past situations, it never works out. So the question is, God put this in the Bible there, right? He put it there for us um, to reveal something fundamentally flawed about us. But he doesn't leave us alone. He gives us a solution. And the answer to this problem, the answer to this issue, as so many others, almost every, I mean, every other spiritual issue, every other core issue, the answer to it is found in Jesus Christ. And I want to jump to the New Testament. 
I want to fast forward and I want to look at a story of Jesus that maybe we've read a hundred times. Okay, those of us who have been in church, maybe if you've not been in church, you never heard of it. Either way, I hope that we can see it through some new eyes today and see God's perfect timing. Because I have a confession to make to you today. And here's my confession for this sermon, okay, for this talk. I am far more concerned with my plans than with God's timing. I care more about what I want, what I think I need, what I desire than what God wants. And he knows I need and his desires for me. I am more concerned with me than I'm concerned with him. And I often find myself bitter and angry at God's timing. So I want to look at the, a story of Jesus. I want to give you some context. Jesus, it's in the, it's in the uh, gospel, Mark. Jesus has uh, started his ministry. He's done many miracles. He, he's going around gathering interest. People are starting to really, man, who is this guy, right? They're starting to gather around him. And uh, there's these really interesting stories that begin to happen, starting in Mark chapter 4. The first one is that Jesus had been teaching, okay, uh, and, and he begins, uh, he and his disciples get on a boat on Lake Galilee. Galilee is like north. It's, uh, it's uh, let me get my geography right. It's east of the Mediterranean Sea, north of Jerusalem. If you guys can remember geography, whatever, it's okay. Um, but he gets in the Lake of Galilee, okay? And he sails across the lake to this region, okay? But right in the middle of the lake, a storm comes and it's huge. And it's about to knock the boat over and Jesus is sleeping, right? And his disciples are freaking out like any of us would have been doing, okay? And they're like, Jesus, you don't care about me at all. You don't care about us. Jesus gets up, he rebukes the weather and it stops. Whole thing just goes calm. And then Jesus is like, where's your faith? It's me, where's your faith? And then they get to this, uh, to the next side of the lake and then this Dude who's demonically oppressed and possessed. I mean, this guy is like Hollywood times 10, okay? He's growling, he's yelling, he's running around. They can't keep shackles on him. He's breaking them. He's cutting himself with rocks. This dude is messed up. And he has thousands of demons in him. And Jesus casts these demons out. And everyone's just like, what in the world is happening? And then we come to this story in Mark chapter 5. And I want us to notice, though, before we read, Jesus controls the weather. He controls the natural world. He can say a word and it'll obey. Jesus controls the spiritual world. The demons don't stand a chance. He says, go, they have to go. And then we come here where he's interacting with the people. And so Jesus comes back, and it's in Mark chapter 5, and we'll read it together. Mark chapter 5, 21 through 24. We'll start. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of them, a synagogue leader named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. So Jesus gets there. 
Jairus is a pastor, right? He's a leader, he's a religious leader in the community. He would have been well-respected, right? He comes to Jesus, he submits to Jesus, and he says, look, my daughter's at the point of death. Please, please come heal him. And Jesus says, okay, he's going. And then it continues, Mark chapter five. And, and, and let me give you some context. In the middle of this, though, right, this crowd is pressed around him, and a woman who had been dealing with a hemorrhage and bleeding for 12 years, just thinks, if I can touch Jesus, if I can just touch his cloak, then I'll be better. That's all I have to do. And so uh, she does, she touches him, and she's immediately healed. She notices it. She feels it, and Jesus notices it too. He's like, power came out of me. Something happened here, okay? And he's looking around to find what happened, and he says, uh, who touched me? And his disciples are, are you crazy? Everybody's touching you. They're pressed in around you. It's like Elvis or like, or I don't know, who's One Direction. I don't know, I'm just saying, it's like you got these people, right? Well, he's better than all of those. But anyway, you got all these people. Everyone's touching you. What do you mean, Jesus? And, and, but he knew something was different. And so he says, who touched me? And, and, and he looks around, it's Mark 5, 32 through 34. It says, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, this is the woman with the issue of blood, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, what a beautiful story of God's healing. What a beautiful story of Jesus controlling, having control over our bodies and and in compassion healing this woman. But I want you to notice what he's not doing. He's not going to Jairus' daughter. Now, if you're a doctor in here, you should be appalled. And the reason you should be appalled is that Jesus stopped, wasted precious moments. You know, right, in a triage situation, when there is critical, uh, you know, people are in critical condition, every second counts, and Jesus stops and has this conversation and heals this woman who obviously was not going to die. When you talk about priorities, right, it seems like Jesus has them jacked up. He's he's stopping to talk to this woman when this little girl is dying. And here's the result of what happens. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Think about Jairus for a second, right? Any of us with children, I mean, how broken would we be? Jesus, we asked you, What's up with your timing? We asked you to come help, and you stopped for this woman. I mean, have you ever felt, man, why, God, do you care about that person more than me? Why have you helped them and their situation when you're not helping me and mine? I mean, what is going on here? Why are they more important than I am? I mean, you can feel it if you really start to think about it. Man, Jairus would have been devastated in that moment had every reason to be mad at Jesus. But look at what Jesus says. Overhearing what they said, Jesus said, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? This child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. 
After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old, and at this they were completely astonished. Now what can be kind of missed here is what Jesus says. He goes in there, right? It's already feeling like bad timing. Jairus, I mean, ah, you know, he, <laughs> he had to have been having some doubts at this point, whether Jesus was the person to go to. Um, he didn't really uh, help him out, right? His daughter was now dead. He, he, he jacked up the priority, helped someone who didn't need it nearly as much as his daughter does. And now Jesus comes to his daughter and he says, she's asleep. I mean, what interesting language. And then he goes to her and he tells Kate, little girl, I say to you, get up. Now, the interesting thing about this phrase is when you begin to look at how it was used, it was basically the equivalent of our language to a father going in, going into his child's room and saying, sweetie, get up and waking your daughter or your son up from a nap or from in the morning from sleep. And what we sometimes miss is the fact that to Jesus, it was as easy for him to raise this girl from the dead as it was to wake a girl up from a nap. It was as easy for him to raise her from the dead as it was to wake a child up from sleep. Jesus was in total control and his timing was perfect. And sometimes in life, we get really, really upset at God because we feel like he has terrible timing. Because we're more concerned about our timing and what we need and want than his timing. But the reality is what we see here is that Jesus is in control and that his timing is perfect. And when we get to these situations in life and we want to take control or we want to relinquish all responsibility, neither of those are the right way. Neither of those are the right way. See, we can be like the people who said, basically, look, Jairus, your daughter's dead. Stop bothering Jesus anymore. And some of you feel like your problem is just so whacked or out there or insignificant, or maybe it's too much that Jesus doesn't even care. He's not cared about you yet, and he won't care about you now. And you're bitter at Jesus because of timing, right? Forget about you. You don't even care. And then some of us are like those people, right, that laughed at Jesus when he said she's asleep. I mean, look, this is laughable. Look, you don't care about my problem, right? Why would you? It's laughable. I can't believe. It's almost like Jesus is joking when he promises to take care of us and when he tells us he loves us. And we can have these reactions to God's timing in our life. But here's, here's what I think we should do. And here's what happens. Notice that both Jairus and the woman both went to Jesus. And they both went to Jesus in desperation. In other words, they acknowledged that their situation was beyond their control. They acknowledged it. Simply saying today for some of you guys, look, my situation, I've been trying to control it for years. Maybe it's an addiction. For years, and I can't do it. 
Just acknowledging that is freeing. Jesus, I can't do it. And then they asked, right? They asked for his intervention, right? She just touched him and then she confessed the truth. He came, Jesus, I need you. He asked for you, acknowledging it's beyond your control and asking Jesus, please, if you don't intervene, nothing's gonna work here. Nothing's gonna work here. And then they trusted. Think about the times that Jesus talked about faith. Daughter, your faith has made you, made you well. When he talks to his disciples about their faith, basically their trust and confidence that God will actually do what he says he will do, that he actually does care and is concerned and that Jesus is actually in control of the situation and that he has the timing under control. When we acknowledge, right, and then we ask and then we trust, then here's what happens. We can sit back and be astonished at what Jesus does. That last line was they were completely astonished. Completely astonished. Jesus' timing is perfect. You know, Solomon ends that portion of, uh, of, the, uh, of Ecclesiastes 3 in that, that section of scripture in a really interesting way. It's in Ecclesiastes 3.14. And he says this, I know that God does, all that God does will last forever and there is no adding to it or taking away from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. God wants your heart. He doesn't want your works. He doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't want your material. He doesn't want you to work harder and try more and do more. He just wants your trust and your heart and your love. That's what he wants. He doesn't need any of the other stuff. He's got it under control. He can take care of it. His timing is perfect. And we get to partner in God. And it may be the hardest thing we have to do. God will require things of us. That's not what I'm saying. He requires to do things. But man, we can't do it without him. Until we come to that place of acknowledging that, God, I'm more concerned about myself and my own plans than with your timing. Man, we'll never get to the place where we can acknowledge, God, your timing is perfect perfect. He knows exactly when and where he's going to solve the issue that you're facing. And he wants you to trust in that and trust in him. Remember, timing is everything. And God's timing is perfect. I'm going to pray for us today, and I want you to kind of take in, uh, we all have situations, right? I know that we do, that we're facing that are uh, either uh, stress points for us, uh, we're hurting about it. We're thinking about it. It's consuming maybe our thoughts. Maybe we're dreaming about it. Maybe we're having nightmares about it, right? Maybe we're waking up in the night with cold sweats like I did two days ago, okay? Maybe this stuff's happening. God's concerned about that stuff. And as I pray, I want you to give that situation and I want you to acknowledge, man, here's, here it is. I'm just gonna admit it. God, please intervene. Let me trust in you and see you work. I mean, just give it to him. And uh, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your deep concern for us that you proved it by coming and, and living and ministering and healing and loving. And that you proved it and that we can trust you. We can trust in your timing, God, uh, even if the timing, God, uh, doesn't come until we meet you face to face. We can still trust it. Your timing's perfect. 
And God, I just pray that you'd help it go from head knowledge to heart knowledge to, to travel those, you know, that, that distance, God, we know that's so difficult for us to do. And we need your help doing it. Thank you for giving us these passages of scripture, God, your word that can reveal these things in our heart. God, help us to submit them to you. We need you this morning. God, I just pray that you'd help us have our own confession to you about our lack of trust in your timing and that we give that to you and and allow you to work through it. And we ask all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.